Welcome to Q Talks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Shreya. And I'm Thomas. And we are your hosts for Q Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not-so-typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on QTalks, we're talking to Ipshita Mandel-Johnson, co-founder of Global Biotech Revolution and the first president of the GAP Summit. It will be really interesting to hear from her how her entrepreneurial journey has unfolded from an undergrad student in New Zealand to a PhD student in chemical engineering and biotechnology in Cambridge as an entrepreneur in a startup, then as a consultant with McKinsey and Company, and now again as an entrepreneur. Hi, Ipshita. Thank you very much for coming on the show with us today. Thanks for having me, Shreya. If you could start off by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, where you're from and how you grew up. Sure. Uh, so I, I call myself a Kiwi Indian. I was born in India, uh, grew up in New Zealand. And uh, in, in total, as I was thinking, I've, I've studied and worked in seven countries. I won't list all of them. Um, the way I would define myself is a, a, is a serial entrepreneur and a scientist. Very nice. And uh, at the moment, for our listeners, where are we talking to you from? So at this moment, I am uh, in a beautiful island in the middle of the Caribbean called St. Lucia. Very nice. <laughs> Very impressive. Um, so if we could start off by uh, maybe discussing some of your experiences or encounters during your early years that have shaped what you are doing today. Sure. Um, I, I guess, I mean, flowing through with the whole sort of travel theme of it, um, my parents luckily or unluckily took me through seven different schools as well when I was growing up till year 12. So um, uh, that's probably given me a nice diversity of like working with different cultures, um, but also like in different types of uh, institutions. So one one sort of uh, encounter that came to my mind uh, when I was thinking about it was um, I was in Calcutta in a Catholic school in Calcutta when I was in well in mid school. And one of the encounters there was, it was a Catholic school, so there was a lot of charity work we had to do. So one of my biggest um, uh, sort of uh, satisfying memories from that time was we had to teach kids in the school, um, underprivileged kids, but we also had to go to like um, uh, villages around um, rural or urban slums in Calcutta to sort of teach local craft and, and sort of, you know, um, local traditional activities so that people had employment. So that was one experience uh, which kind of, which I always thought I was a decent kid, a decent um, grade student when I was growing up. But I think that brought a whole sort of social impact emphasis uh, as I was growing through. Um, and that kind of grew as I was in my early college years as well, um, backpacking across in different bits of Asia. Um, 
I sort of did a bit more of that. So, yeah, a few of those encounters have been quite useful when I think back. Well, that's that's fantastic. And we'll talk about your career journey uh, in, in a moment, um, but maybe more generally, did you envision your journey from the start or did it develop with time as opportunities presented themselves? I would say, Tom, as a bit of both because... Growing up in an Asian family, if you don't know what you're doing, your parents pretty much know what you should be doing. So I, I kind of set up a, a a goal of like where I wanted to go before my parents pushed me into uh, becoming a doctor. Uh, so I, I always wanted to be a tech entrepreneur. I always sort of, you know, grew up sort of envisaging that's pretty cool. That's a great job. You know, the best of tech, the best of business. Uh, but frankly, I had I had no clue um, how the last 10, 15 years were going to shape up. And I still, I'm, I'm excited every, every few months to see where this roadmap is going. So yeah, opportunities keep presenting themselves. Amazing. And so before we move on to exploring your entrepreneurial journey a bit more, maybe you could just give us a brief overview about uh, the ventures that you have done and what you're currently doing. I know you said you're a serial entrepreneur, but just so that people kind of have a picture in their mind um, before we dig into your uh, journey. Sure. I mean, when you say serial entrepreneur, I think I've been a serial failed entrepreneur with lots of like a few few projects that have worked out successfully. Um, so I, I guess that the, the entrepreneurship bug kind of hit me when I was in New Zealand. Um, I started uh, in high schools uh, building out ventures. So in my high, final year of high school, we started a digital marketing uh, advertising platform, which failed, but it was a good experience. Um, and since then, Shreya, I think it's... Going, going into university, going into a technology degree, I've been exposed to like uh, different ventures in agricultural, digital agriculture with carbon nanoparticles, with liver diagnostics. A um, couple of ventures which did hit off. Um, one was uh, working post my PhD with Global Biotech Revolution, which was uh, a sort of a social enterprise. And the second one that really hit off well was um, in Cambridge as well, uh, which was Bactivo, uh, which I just joined after my PhD as well, which uh, turned into a platform technology company in looking for new therapies and rare diseases. So those two ventures were great. And now I'm sort of in an entrepreneurial state again. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm founding another venture now. So happy to talk about that later as well. Very very cool, and and I mean as 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 your very quick summary indicates, um, you have had a really interesting entrepreneurial journey to date. More to come, of course, um, and but we want to understand where this entrepreneurial ambition came from. So did you have any kind of inspiration during your school years or maybe your undergraduate studies that kind of inspired you to continue with that entrepreneurial buck you had from an early age? It's a good question, Thomas. Uh, New Zealand's a little bit of a funny place because it's got a very do-it-yourself culture. There's not many big corporates or like um, big institutions. There are lots of small businesses. 
so I guess just growing up in New Zealand, um, you you're you're like every every second or third person is an entrepreneur. Even even during university years, uh, it was really easy to see few people who were just a few years ahead, like five seven years ahead of you, who had started up ventures and were getting funding. So that kind of that kind of got me interested. I guess what really personally got me into it, um, I, I, I always loved science as a kid. Like I just loved my physics, biology, chemistry and maths. Um, but I always was very application focused and, and especially with that social side that I mentioned before, social impact. I wanted to see how some of this science and technology could help you know, improve things out in the world. So that's probably why the entrepreneurship thing started. You mentioned you did a PhD in Cambridge after studying in New Zealand. Do you think that complemented that kind of entrepreneurial ambition that you already had? Or do you think that you saw a different side to entrepreneurship, particularly in science or healthcare um, during that PhD? Uh, so Shreya, when I was starting my PhD, I already went into it. Um, I chose my supervisor with the mindset of I'd like to start a company with the PhD research I do, which didn't happen, by the way. Uh, but uh, I, I kind of knew going into Cambridge that um, I, I do things with my PhD, uh, like alongside my PhD and also would want to spin off into a venture after the PhD. So that was the plan. But, you know, during my undergrad years in New Zealand as well, I'd, I'd been testing out different ventures in New Zealand. So, yeah, I, I guess it just got more and more honed in Cambridge because of the unique ecosystem that there is uh, in Cambridge. And you then moved on to a startup after your PhD, right? I did. So, I mean, the, um, global biotech revolution was something I did with my PhD, much to my supervisor's uh, um, repeated warnings about how that's not going to help me finish my PhD. Uh, but just after my PhD, I, I joined a tech startup as their number two employee, at, at which point it was just an idea. Uh, that was Bactivo which is now known as Nana Therapeutics, and they're still in Cambridge. That's fantastic. And, and what inspired you to join that startup? And what experiences did you collect during that time? Yeah, I mean, one, when I was doing my social enterprise in, during my PhD, I, I did want to focus into a core technology startup. And I was uh, really taken into finding new therapies for unaddressed diseases. So not going into the sort of traditional, very populated cancer medicines, um, uh, cardiovascular, but going into untreated medicines more, uh, but also looking at like a core technology platform because it was great to do social enterprise, but I, I wanted to you know, have a proper product in my hands as well that I would be developing. So when, so when I was looking around, so I'd been involved with One Nucleus um, in Cambridge. Uh, Harriet Fear used to run the, inst uh, the sort of group back then. Harriet had been very instrumental with Global Biotech Revolution. So um, I was just talking to a bunch of entrepreneurs in Cambridge and, you know, uh, from the AppCamp founders to Darren Disley, the, the sort of 
the amazing boys club that there is in Cambridge. I was talking to many people. Uh, the one person who struck out to me was um, David Williams. He um, and his team, his founding team. So when I went into joining Bactivo, it was both because of the amazing science that was being conducted there, but also the the three founders who I was joining um, had all been out in the industry for 20, 25 years um, and had a diverse set of experiences in pharma or venture capital or as a professor in academia. I, I really wanted to dig into that opportunity of working with such amazing people to build a company. Well, that's, that's great. And how, how, how was it to be in a startup as their number two employee? Uh, it felt really risky, Thomas, because as I was graduating from Cambridge, I found um, most people uh, were seduced by the banking and consulting or or sort of um, corporate strategy roles, which are, are very useful and great training grounds. Um, but so it, it felt really risky going into something like a startup after my PhD, which at that point hadn't secured any funding. Um, and, and basically, you know, it felt like jump, like jumping from, I guess, jump, doing a PhD is jumping out of a cliff. And then it felt like jumping out of another cliff again, going into a startup. So, but it was exciting as well, because it felt like, because as a number two employee, you're almost shaping your role into the companies, which was great. I really enjoyed that. So that must have been a pretty different experience to then later on you joined McKinsey for a few years. Is that is that correct? I did. And um, it, it felt like uh, I really had to question. Uh, joining McKinsey was almost like not, it was almost a, a channel into, the, the reason wasn't to join McKinsey. The reason was to going into emerging markets. So um, after after Bactiva and Nana Therapeutics had grown to a stage where we had Series A funding, we had two or three pharma collaborations, the initial technology had been patented and was now being applied in a certain set of diseases. Um, once I felt that, you know, those, those first early few years of like, you know, hard work had we started paying off, um, I wanted to move back into my sort of social mindset of, you know, technology for low and middle income countries. And McKinsey felt like the best way to enter those markets because those markets are very volatile. Well, what, what maybe is important to, to mention is that you, you didn't just join McKinsey out of the startup. You went to McKinsey in India. Exactly. Um, in, in fact... Um, my relationship with McKinsey was there for a few years before. So when global biotech revolution, the social enterprise during my PhD, McKinsey had come in as a knowledge partner. So I'd known a bunch of McKinsey folks for a while. Uh, but yeah, when I came to sort of doing my uh, strategy of how to go into India and what's the best way of having impact in the healthcare space and the technology space in India, um, after talking to a bunch of different companies and startups, I decided McKinsey 
joining the McKinsey office in Delhi uh, initially was going to be the best place. And so how, how was it as, a, as an early stage entrepreneur then joining a consulting firm? And what did you learn there that really benefited you and maybe also what prompted you then to, to leave McKinsey after, uh, I think, two and a half years? Yeah. Um, so I, I guess with McKinsey, there were, there was two things. One, the emerging markets focus, so going into India. But secondly, um, when I was leaving Bactivonana Therapeutics, we had just grown to a team of about 15 to 20 people. That was great to see in the space of two and a half, three years. But I also had collaborators or partnerships with other pharma companies, which have tens and thousands of people, uh, different people involved in different functions. So I really wanted to use that McKinsey time to understand when you scale a venture to that size, what sort of challenges, what sort of strategic thinking do you do? So McKinsey was... Um, I think McKinsey is what you make it be or like McKinsey or Bain or BCG or the top firms. Um, it, it's They are, as you join as a, gen, a generalist strategy consultant, um, it's very important to know what skills and what, what topics you want to work on. So my time at McKinsey, I focused on um, a lot of work for people at the bottom of the pyramid. So one of my favorite projects was um, working with the government of India for nine months, where we were figuring their digital healthcare, digital agriculture, digital education strategy for the next 10, 15 years. Um, there was no other place other than McKinsey that would let you do something like that. Um, and getting that opportunity, I even had a, a, a session with the prime minister um, my engagement manager and my team were too busy to meet the prime minister that day. So uh, I had the opportunity to go and present to him about digital agriculture and the plan for India and what we should be doing. It is one of those rare places where you can do something like that. Um, and then McKinsey took me, they, they really liked my pharma biotech experience and background. So they took me to New York and I got involved in one of the uh, top five uh, pharma mergers. Um, of course, I can't mention who the clients were, but um, it was a it was a big uh, multi-billion dollar merger, and I was the chief of staff for the chief integration officer. So that again was uh, a mind-boggling project because uh, looking at merging two huge pharma uh, biotech companies together. Uh, and looking through all their operations um, and, and thinking through what, what are investors thinking about, how is the op executive team thinking about it, how does the operations for all the different functions work when this gets joined. That was a mind-boggling project too. So there were a couple of projects like that, Thomas, which really like made the McKinsey experience great for me. Uh, the reason I decided to leave was, again, because of the entrepreneurship bug, because I never felt that the culture of huge, big companies, may that be the clients that I was working with, or or even McKinsey itself, um, I, I often felt a little stifled with my uh, brash new ideas and entrepreneurial thinking, and let's do something new, let's do this, or um, that was a little 
hard for me as an entrepreneur to settle there for too long. So I decided that I was going to take a jump and this time come to the Caribbean and, and plan my next venture. So you um, thinking about that entrepreneurial bug, you mentioned the global biotech revolution um, and we haven't really talked about that much. So um, maybe you could explain uh, what the global biotech revolution is or what it was when it first started and what it is now um, and what was your inspiration for making it happen? Sure. Uh, so Shreya, uh, global biotech revolution um, was something I started in my first year of my PhD. Um, so this had probably shaped up a bit uh, because of two reasons. One being, you know, just coming into Cambridge, any Cambridge student can vouch for this, you know, the plethora of different uh uh, inspirational people you meet, if that's in the colleges, if it's in the departments, uh, if it's the entrepreneurs or the different tech companies that are around, that ecosystem, just going through and learning from different people in that ecosystem for me for those first three to six months was great. I, I felt Cambridge was a little bit of a bubble because I personally felt quite privileged to have made it uh, with sort of you know scholarship backing up and all that but I felt a lot of people don't get exposed to such an ecosystem unless you can make it to Cambridge so that was one reason to start GBR especially in the biosciences space um, and secondly I didn't been involved with a national um, sort of student tech organization in New Zealand called Chiasma so so I'd, I'd seen that play out over the last four or five years and how that had improved or helped people to figure out the right careers in, in after, after, they after they get graduated. So I wanted to combine that sort of chiasm experience in New Zealand to um, sort of what Cambridge was doing, but at a global level. Um, so I, I, I pushed my lab colleague, Christian Gueda, who was doing his PhD with me and we both decided that let's do something crazy like uh, uh, bringing people from all around the world for three days in Cambridge uh, and to meet all the leaders of today in biotechnology and for them to come out and build ventures after that. So we, we thought we'd do that. We went and told our supervisor about that. He said, stop doing it and focus on your PhD. We still did it. So um, yeah, that was how GBR got founded. Amazing. And um, where where is it at today um, with in terms of the GAP Summit? So the GAP Summit is still taking place every year. We thought after the first year, it took us two years to organize the first GAP Summit. Uh, and it's been eight or nine years since, and it's still taking place. If anything, uh, we've had regional events in uh, Singapore and Washington, D.C., uh, the GAP Summit's now moving between Cambridge, UK and Cambridge, Massachusetts. So it's, it's become more of a global event. Um, so it's been really great to see how it's grown over the years. Uh, we started off the first year with a bang. Uh, we, we had uh, the CEO of Roche, Severin Schwann. We had uh, EVPs, executive vice presidents from various pharma companies, great entrepreneurs, um, the usual amazing people in Cambridge, including Nobel Prize winners. We had a great bunch of people and pe and young people from 40 different countries came in 2014 to Cambridge. 
um, and that's only got better and better over the years. Uh, I think we are somewhere around 100 to 120 different ventures that have been planned at the GAP summits and some of them have secured funding and have gone on. So it's, it's I, I, I still feel it's the first stage of growth for global biotech revolution and the current executive team is doing a great job of managing that. How did you manage to create such a buzz or hype for the first one and get all those amazing people on board? Because I know quite a few people who are organizing conferences or events are trying to create this sort of revolution, as you're saying, in Cambridge. And it, it you could say that it's so saturated right now that to get such huge people on board is quite difficult to do. So how did you go about doing that? You're right, Shreya. I think um, in Cambridge, every postgraduate is trying to do some event or some startup, right? So um, it it definitely uh, it in 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 one way it wasn't about standing out. I I think in if anything we were looking at maybe joining forces with existing initiatives to do something like this. The thing that stood out, Shreya, was the fact that. We, we weren't thinking about this as just Cambridge students being involved in this. We, we wanted, you know, my sort of personal inclination towards uh, low and middle income countries. I, I wanted people, um, students from different countries in Africa, different countries in Asia, uh, Latin America to fly to Cambridge to get full scholarships to come and meet the leaders of today. So the whole global focus of it was something uh, that was quite different for Cambridge still, um, which also made it really hard, but it also worked. Um, and, then, and then I guess just being a bit, again, entrepreneurial in the sense, we as, as a student, you can get into lots of things be, um, without like, you know, having to pay for it. So we collaborated with the economist we collaborated with the financial times we collaborated with the um, biotechnology industry organization in us to um, get in free to different events um, to learn from like you know the current leaders of today about what are the global healthcare agriculture food um, energy topics that they're talking about um, and, and invite them to come to the GAP Summit. So I think it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a hit and miss and sort of learning as we go. It's become much more structured now, Shreya, with like there's almost sort of like a, a, a beautiful recipe book of how to do a GAP Summit and uh, the team innovates within that. But I think the first, first GAP Summit was a bit of putting things together as we were going. One one notion that has been quite important to you is making an impact. From your experience, uh, Ifita, how can individuals shape change on a wider scale? I think it becomes really hard to think about impact if you think about it as at, at an individual level, Thomas, because if you feel that, oh, I, one man is not a solution to me, I think how it's worked for me so far is I've been very lucky to have mentors, advisors, team members um, who've who've helped me create that impact. So I've not been alone in this. I've been very lucky to find 
um, people like Sir Greg Winter who came into global biotech revolution when it was an idea, um, one page idea or uh, uh, people who've helped me start ventures after that as well. People who've just signed into your time with their time. So I think thinking about it as it's a network way of bringing impact has helped me rather than it's my responsibility individually. That makes sense. Who do you look to surround yourself with then if you're saying that it's a network and the sort of mentors that you have? Is there a particular sort of type of people that you that you look towards or how do you go about that? Uh, I think the beautiful Cambridge thing is like just meeting people who are different to you. Uh, if anything, I, I try to meet people who challenge and debate with me rather than agree with me and they are the people I keep in touch with because um, there's too many people who will agree with you and you know and and make you feel that you're doing a great job but I think people who criticize you I, so friends who've criticized me mentors and I, I try and keep up with their logic and thinking I may not agree with it most of the time but yeah so I, I think that Cambridge college system has helped. Um, and even now, as I'm moving into Boston, um, partially now and, and uh, fully from next year, I'm, I'm developing that network further and further. Uh, I'm looking out again with people who are doing different things. So one of the things, for example, Shreya, to give you an example is, I've got involved with the public health school in Harvard. Um, I've never done a public health degree. Um, I don't know what epidemiology and what demographics make a difference and how healthcare systems fully work. But all of a sudden, I'm finding myself giving lectures about public health in Harvard um, from next week. So it's the sort of thing where sort of jumping into um, areas which sometimes you don't know anything about, but you learn as you go has, has been good. And meeting people who are, are willing to vouch for you willing to give you that platform has been good. G given your focus on, on healthcare and your emerging interest in this as well, perhaps, and in addition to that, your, your interest in low and middle income countries, where do you see the most interesting or perhaps biggest opportunities for pride minds of today to get involved in this area? There's three areas, Thomas, that I've been looking quite actively in. Um, one is access and finance in healthcare. Uh, I think US has a huge issue, but overall globally, um, the um, UN reports something like 400 million people in the world don't have good access to healthcare, basic access to healthcare. So there's a lot of innovation to go about how we can finance uh, healthcare for these people. And I think digital, health insurance or um, uh, smarter health delivery platforms have a big role to play there. I, I also personally believe number two is on preventative healthcare. Um, I, I feel having worked in pharma and biotech, there's obviously the need for uh, critical unmet diseases, the development of therapies and diagnostics for them. But I feel sometimes um, some of the more cooler ideas that have been stepping up, especially from the Valley, have been around, you know, looking after your mental health, looking after 
uh, with Calm apps or My Fitness app, Pal or Fitbit. I think more of those sort of day-to-day healthcare and and food nutrition things are 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 really interesting, and moving that away from just developed world applications, but how we can move that to low and middle income countries where there's a bigger surge of cardiovascular um, and cancer uh, diseases, that the growth rate's going to be higher in those countries. That's something to think about. And and sort of um, encompassing both finance and preventative healthcare is digital. And I mentioned that, but I, I think we still have a huge problem in healthcare uh, partly from the way the academic research thinking, but also from the corporate thinking about not sharing data openly. And I think there's a lot of work that regulators, companies and entrepreneurs need to work together on how we create effective systems to share good quality data and how do we analyze some of that data well. So these three areas to me are really interesting and I'm, I'm looking at uh, spending more time with ventures in those spaces. Very interesting. So we've it's been great to be able to pick your brain um, and I'm sure your past self would also want to do the same. So what would your advice be to your past self if you could give it? I, I think I've there's always been, there was an inhibition that my... Um, teacher in India had once put to me was, um, you're a young woman and your priorities in life will change. So, um, you know, you may not be as successful as you think um, in another 10 years time. And I I I felt in the last 15, 20 years, I've sort of tried to fight that sort of comment from that teacher in India so many times that I've almost been trying to prove to myself or following some recipe book and it's only in the last year I think that I've sort of reflected back and thought that all I need to be is you know I've, I've got got to be a genuine person I've got, just got to I, I, without sounding too sort of um, uh, mainstream or anything about it but being yourself you know just just be genuine be yourself and you don't have to do things that other people are doing you've got to do things that work for you and i wish i had the confidence and the oversight not to um sometimes take even bigger leaps so let's see how the next 10 15 years turn out that's great advice for your potential puzzle and everybody listening. Um, so we've got a final question, fun question before we finish up. Um, so aside from the uh, kind of obvious draws of of being in the Caribbean, why why did you choose the Caribbean in particular? I, I felt I'd been moving in full steam for a while, Shreya. It's been um, sort of switching countries, switching different professions. Uh, and I wanted... I mean, Caribbean's great for the sun and the sea and the cocktails. So uh, I've I decided I wanted an internal sort of retreat, a launch pad sort of a place where I could get a wooden hut, uh, literally is where I live, and uh, sort of talk to lots of amazing people and plan my next venture. But also um, St. Lucia in the Caribbean is a middle-income country, um, and there are about... 29% of the population is unemployed. 
um, and some 60% of the population is in the informal sector. So I'm actually doing some um, groundwork on universal healthcare with the government here. Um, so looking at how we create a national health insurance fund. Uh, but I'm also looking at an ag tech venture to have a sustainable cocoa industry in St. Lucia. So I'm using some of my entrepreneurial thinking uh, whilst I'm here. So it's, it's, it's really nice. And I feel like staying here for like the rest of my life. But I probably should move back to the real world. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's great. And thank you so much for taking the time and for your reflections on your entrepreneurial journey. It has been great fun, Asita. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for inviting me. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Shreya, as well. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. I really love talking uh, with Ipsita today. Um, I particularly was impressed by her reflection on her decisions, both the decision to become an entrepreneur, but also the experiences she made as an entrepreneur. And I'm, I'm very impressed that she now is taking some time off, moved to Caribbean island to reflect on her decisions and planning her next move. I think that's something a lot of people out there can probably resonate with, um, that you make choices, but then it's important to also reflect on these choices. Definitely. And for me, it was great to hear about the entrepreneurial drive that kept going throughout, how it started at such a young age when most people must be would be thinking about career choices rather than uh, kind of starting up their own companies. So I found that incredible. And even when she's taking time off in the Caribbean, is still go continuing with the entrepreneurial spirit. So I thought that was that was amazing to hear and pretty inspirational for a lot of us. Um, so yeah. Absolutely. She's, she's a great person and um, it was great fun. Thanks very much to Ipshita for joining us on QTalks. This podcast was produced by Carl Hamer from Cambridge TV. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech who've been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us about your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks. Thank you.